1: It's the Mike Messinelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.
0: Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another Mike Messinelli podcast. Brought to you by the great people at Bet Rivers. This is podcast episode number seventeen, and we're doing this on a Monday, October third, Halloween but also the start of the Philly run here in the World Series. Three games at Citizens Bank Ballpark starting tonight. So what we're going to do in this podcast, we're going to look at tonight and and the following games because the Phillies can actually win the World Series at home. Think about that for a second. And then we're going to go back and look at uh, games one and two as we are tied 1-1 as we go into tonight's game. So, it's been announced that uh, the pitcher in game three will be Noah Syndergaard. Um, There are two things that worry me about tonight and tomorrow. And I'm hoping that the fact that the games are at home overcome my worries. Uh, You know, uh, Italian people say uh, it gives you a little agita. And uh, I got a little agita today because I got Noah Syndergaard going against the big, bad Houston Astros. They have to count on Noah Syndergaard at least getting through three innings and hopefully four innings. And I worry a little bit about whether he can do that against this team. One of the things that makes me worry a lot is that the top of the lineup for the Houston Astros has been awakened a little bit. Altuve had been in a terrible slump. Didn't even look like the same hitter. And all of a sudden he flashes in game two, and he got really aggressive against Wheeler and bang. He gets the double to start the game, and I think that ignited him a little bit. He had three hits in that game, and and he's their engine at the top of the order. When when he was not uh, hitting, they had to rely on a lot of guys all the way down the lineup. When he hits, it lessens the load on those type of guys. So that's my major worry tonight. It's Syndergaard and Altuve getting awakened. So let's let's look at Syndergaard here. And, and, like, I, I, I'm just not feeling that good about him. And, I, and I, there's probably no reason for me not to feel good about him. He's been okay. He's gotten them through three innings at least in some important starts. Uh But tonight um I worry about that they're going to have to empty their bullpen. And, and that leaves them really short for game four. So tonight uh, they may have to use the whole store. They, the guys that are going to have to come in after Syndergaard, we Bilotti and Brogdon. They'll have to get middle innings out of the way. They'll have to get some outs in the middle of the inning, so he can use in high leverage situations. Alvarez, who he I don't think can wait till the end of the game to use, so he may have to come in early, like a sixth or seventh situation, to get out of left hander. And then uh, you got the the, the Robertson Dominguez thing, and you might even see Brad Hand, which is a worry of mine, in, in early innings to try to get out of left hander. But if you bring him in to get at a the left handed like Alvarez, then you got to deal with Bregman and some right-handed hitters. And you ain't got Kyle Tucker. So I hope if you have to use Brad Hand, Brogdon, and Bilotti early, uh, it worries me a little bit for game three. But here's the counterpoint. The Phillies are at home. Now, I didn't realize this stat, but the Phillies at Citizen Bank Ballpark in the postseason are 21-9. and that is the best home field advantage in postseason in history. And the Phillies have it. The percentage of them winning home games in the postseason. I'm not talking about regular season. I'm talking about when, when the heat is on in the postseason, the crowd energy has obviously had something to do with that 21-9 and nine type of situation. So if you want to put it on a balancing scale, Syndergaard and the bullpen versus uh, – Uh, uh, Altuve and Altuve being hot versus the home field advantage at Citizens Bank ballpark as we look at game three. Now, if you look at game four, Ranger Suarez is going to have to be a stalwart. Ranger Suarez cannot be Noah Syndergaard because the bullpen will be used tonight. So, Now you're talking about guys that you don't want to use in back-to-back situations, or if you use them in back-to-back situations, you worry whether they're going to be as effective, and that's where Ranger Suarez comes in in Game 4. He's going to have to deliver, I believe, six innings, at least for the Phillies, in Game 4. So those Game 3 and 4 worries worry me. Uh, But then you get to, you know, it's Game 5. I don't want to be negative in this podcast, because I happen to like their chances at home. But the, uh, you can't help but be worried about their start. Their starters were supposed to be the reliable part of this. And I'm talking about Nolan Wheeler, and they really have it. And you're now at a stage of the season now. You worry about Nola, but you don't worry about him losing his fastball. You worry about Wheeler losing his fastball. And Wheeler uh, admitted that maybe it's a little late in the season and he's tired. He's losing miles per hour. Uh, and you saw it in the last game. And that, that allowed Houston to be aggressive. Uh, you know, when he's not throwing 99 in the strike zone, he's throwing 95. They're on top of that. So I'm getting you know, all those worries out of the way uh, right out of the shoot here. So we, we look at it objectively. Uh, I think the Phillies can win two of three at home. However they do it is is irrelevant to me. Whether it's a bullpen game tonight, whether it's Ranger Suarez coming up big, and whether it's one of the starters like Noah coming big in, up in game five, And then you send it back to Houston. You got Wheeler going for game six. So that's the comfort level here. If they win two of three here, then you have to go back to Houston and stave them off. All right, let's go back in time and look at the games that have been played since we haven't had a chance to talk to you uh, since those games have been played. Uh, And so let's look at game one, which I thought was a really interesting game. And it had everybody believing that this was such a team of destiny. They can come back from a 5-0 deficit against Aaron Nola, and win that game in extra innings, forget about it. This team is, is gifted the World Series because it was something that was so unexpected. All right, they're down 5-0. Let's go to the top of the fourth. Verlander is cruising through three. He's got one out. had not given up a hit yet. Hoskins gets the first hit of the game. It seems like a harmless little single, but what it does is it breaks the seal. Real Muto then hits a line drive to the pitcher. Should have been a catch. Hoskins was off the base. He was dead duck. Double play. He can't handle it. They only get one out out of it, and Hoskins gets to second base. Instead of a double play, now there's a guy on second base, and Harper singles to score him. That is so huge to crack that seal on Verlander. And now Verlander's gone, hmm, I'm not invincible anymore. Castellanos pokes a single to drive in Hoskins, uh, it's five one. First of all, Hoskins doesn't score. I'm sorry on the single that Harper hits. Hoskins for some reason, if you look at the play, a lot of people are blaming Dusty Watson. If you look at the play, it's two outs. Hoskins jogging at third base. I'm going, dude, it's two outs. Get on your horse. But that's why Dusty Watson had to hold him. I don't think he really busted the third. But Castellanos picks him up, and that's what happens in a really good lineup when you when you squander a, a run and and you saw Harper's frustration. With, with Hoskins. He, he couldn't believe he didn't score on that play. He should have scored. Castellanos picks him up, pokes a single to left field, drives in Hoskins. That's the first round of the game. And then, boom, doubles to left. And all of a sudden, it's 5-3. to three. And Verlander is like, hmm, I haven't been that successful in the World Series. Uh, is this another time I'm not going to be successful? You got to him. There's no question. Uh, Nola, meanwhile, who was getting slammed, guts it out. He gets three up, three down in the fourth. And then the fills in the fifth. Marsh, it's the double, the shallow left field, and Schwerber walks. At that point, does Dusty Baker look at Verlander and say, you know what, it's the World Series. Verlander's a stud. I owe him all the dedication and loyalty that I have, but not now. Well, he went the other way. He's an old-school manager. And he said after the game, he's, he's Dustin Verlander. He's going to figure out a way to get out of it. Well, he gets Hoskins to pop up. Uh, but Real Muto hits a double off the left field wall and the game's tied. So there's a, a classic second guess moment in the World Series. You don't have a lot of time to give guys time. And we're going to talk to Charlie Manuel a little later in this broadcast, which is going to be a highlight of this podcast. And I'm going to ask Charlie about that, how he would have managed that particular situation. I looked at it like well, Verlander doesn't look the same. He doesn't look the same physically or mentally. It, it looked like. His head was cluttered when the Phillies got back to 5-3. So when when Schwerber walked, I, I may have brought in my lights out bullpen to stem it right there. Instead, he allowed on the pitch to Real Muto, who doubled off the left field wall. And all of a sudden, it's a new game. Meanwhile, Rob Thompson starts a brilliantly managed game with his bullpen. He trusts Nola to get a strikeout on Peña. Nola looked like he... He had Pena's number. He trusts him to get out Pena as the second hitter. And then here comes Alvarado for uh, um, um, Jordan Alvarez. And he gets in the pop out and he blows away Bregman. All right. Beautiful manager. You got your guy. You're using him early. He's a late-inning leverage guy. But you bring him in because you've got to keep that game tied at that point. And the way to get it is trust your guy to get the the the, uh, the outs that you need to get and then manage it from that point on. Uh, all right, so, so he does manage the bullpen. The rest of the game stays at 5-5, five to five and we get the extra innings. And here's where Dusty Baker made another mistake. And the people that follow baseball, follow the Astros go, he's got a more reliable Ryan Stanick out there he can use in that situation. Instead, he uses Luis Garcia, which is a move that people are scratching their head. Why would you do that? Why not use the more reliable guy? And he said at the game, he thought Garcia could give you more innings. Well, you know, you can't manage that way. You can't manage that this game is going to go 13 innings and you need that guy in there to give you three innings. You got to manage it out by out. He didn't do it at that point. And Real Muto hits the home run that gives them an improbable, and I mean improbable, six to five win to the point where Philadelphia's going, they're going to win the World Series. That's a game you look at and go, they come back in Houston. After being down, find nothing and win it the way they did, there's no way they can possibly lose. And then we get to game two. And one of the reasons why you can't possibly lose is you got your ace now on extra rest pitching game two. So what happens? Well, Wheelish velocity is a little bit down, and the Astros go, you know what? Enough, Enough getting in, in, in advantageous counts. If he's around the plate early, we're hacking. And bang. In four pitches, three doubles, Altuve to left, Pena to left down the line, Alvarez a, a double to left, and, and with two outs, Sosa makes the error. I question why Edmundo Sosa was playing at that point, because I understand that Bryson Stott, you don't trust him like 100% against left-handed pitchers. But Bryson Stott is giving you stability at shortstop. And... um I have a problem with managers that want to do it the same way all the time. Like, I think Rob Thompson has thought his way brilliantly through the postseason. But I thought maybe he overthought and say, uh, I'm playing the safe way. I'm going righty against lefty, and I'm taking Stott out. I have a problem with Veerling playing for Marsh. But you're taking Stott out of the lineup who's had nothing but great at-bats, uh, and he's giving you, you solid defense. It's a classic second-guess situation because Sosa's a pretty good defender also. But he makes a low fr- throw. And and like they don't have Keith Hernandez over there to scoop that, right? They they've got the guy who's uh is like the anti-scooper. Uh, he he, listen, I I like Reese Hoskins a lot, but he's not gonna make a play. He's not gonna pick you up nine times out of ten by making a scoop. And and that ball, like uh, a good first baseman can short hop a ball. He he didn't. He he let the ball hit the heel of his glove. Normally, a short hop, you bring that glove up instinctively, and then you catch it in the pocket of that glove, he doesn't have those type of hand skills. So if you look at it, you go, Sosa makes a throw in the dirt. That's a problem. And so uh, the Astros get another run out of that. Now, the Phillies just were flummoxed by Framber Valdez. That guy's a really good pitcher. You, you have no idea what he's going to throw you at, at a particular time. His command on his breaking stuff is just amazing. They had one base runner and a second on a walk. They had one hit, a Schwarber single in the third. In the fourth, they get three up, three down. In the fifth, Segura singles and Fearling hits a hard ground ball, but it's a double play. And in the fifth, Bregman hits a home run to make it five nothing. You're waiting for that last minute rally because it's five nothing, and you go five nothing. They came back with that from that before. <coughs> Excuse me, but uh, in the sixth, this is their chance. Schwarber walks. Hoskins single, Real Muta. Strikeout. Harper, I can't complain. But he hits into a double play there in the sixth inning. They get out of it. In the seventh, sacrifice fly to score a run with Castellanos. They get a little bit of life. In the eighth, two on two out, Harper pops out. And in the ninth, they get the run with the Bohm double in the Gurriel era. But the Houston bullpen just holds them off. And here we are now. We are now in a three-game series at home. Fans gone crazy. And uh, so I'm going to bring in Darren, our producer, the voice in the wilderness. Darren, um, you heard my mental condition on this game, the little worries that I have. But I'm also comforted by the fact that they're 21-9 and 9 at Citizens Bank Park, which means something to me. So how do you see these three games?
3: Twenty-one and nine—it's the best record in the history of Major League Baseball in the postseason. Twenty-one and nine at home,
0: home field advantage. Yes,
3: home field—the greatest home field advantage in Major League postseason history. Yes, Um, that's definitely helpful. You know, Fran Valdez. No one lifts his pitches, and that's what the Phillies do well—they hit, they hit bombs, right? No one lifts him. Everything's on the ground with him, so that's not the game that concerned me. I'm worried about tonight because of cindergard it's a big question mark what he can give you more to the point how long he can give you, and like you said, are they going to have to empty out the clip on the pen tonight? They may have to. The problem with that is now you come back with Ranger tomorrow night, who by the way Ranger's been great, everything they've asked him to do start relief middle inning, close it he's been fantastic, but it's a lot to ask for him tomorrow night, so you know, you got to find a way to win one of these two games and hope that Nola, who's really been disappointing his last few starts in the postseason, man. I mean, I get it. You know, they're, these guys are tired. I get it. But the Astros have the same issues. They their starters are playing the same amount of games, same amount of innings. So you got to hope Nola comes through for you in Game Five. Got to find a way to win one of these first two at home. Put the ball in Nola's hands at Game Five and say, "Go out there, kid, and win a game for us."
0: Yeah, uh, I, they're going to use some bullpen guys tonight. And uh, it, so Thompson's got to now figure whether he can use them two days in a row. He hasn't been willing to use them two days in a row. He goes with he, he, he has he like it's like shift work. He'll, he'll use the guys that he hasn't used the, the night before. So uh, I think tonight he's going to have to use all of uh, Brogdon and Bilotti to get through some middle innings like fourth inning fifth inning and then uh, you know he might slide hand in there against a the left hand there he's scared way well, hand scares me uh and then go to your your bulls at the end and alvarez against robertson but then what do you do the next night because you're going to need some bullpen guys uh in, in game uh four on tuesday so does nick nelson come into play in that game see what i'm saying unless you're willing to go back to guys that you've used and if you're rob thompson you go okay i have to use these guys two days in a row because nola's gonna give me seven so, like, the uh, the need to, uh, like, use those guys three days in a row isn't there. Uh, so, I don't know what he's going to do, but he has been reluctant. He's managed the same way of not using guys two days in a row. And It depends how many pitches they have to throw tonight. But tonight they're going to have to throw some pitches unless Syndergaard flabbergasts me and gets to five, gets through five innings, which I, I don't see happening against this lineup.
3: You say Noah's no going to give you seven. How confident are you going to give – he's going to give you seven? Well,
0: that's – as you – meant the way you manage, you have to go, okay, I got a guy who can give me seven. So I can't worry. Uh, But the priority has to be that I have to get through game four and whoever I have to use to get through that game four. The one thing I can count on is that guy could go deep. I can't count on these guys going deep. I can't count on Syndergaard. I can't count on Suarez. So I've got to manage that bullpen that way. So we'll see what
3: happens. And I think my major concern, though, right now is right now, heading into game three, there is no – maybe Ranger Suarez I have the most confidence in. There's no pitcher right now that I have the utmost confidence in coming in and locking down six, seven innings. Not Noah.
0: No, you're right. And that's a, that's a, that's a worry because, listen, Philly fans looked at this like the givens are – that Nolan Wheeler are going to give you what they've been giving you. Uh, now that's in question. So uh, now it's a, it's a matter, you got to scramble around to win games more than you, you would have had to. So we'll see what happens. It's game one, game two, game three right here, Citizen Bank Ballpark. I, I'm hoping they can take two or three and get it back to Houston and, and then see what happens from that point on. And again, my worries are uh, Altuve is, uh, has clicked back in. Uh, and tonight with, with Syndergaard and then the next night with Ranger Suarez. And I'm trying to get past that uh, as, as I nestle in and, and watch tonight's game.
1: It's the Mike Nassonelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.
0: Yes, it is the Mike Missanelli podcast, again, sponsored by Bet Rivers, and we're talking Phillies baseball, and it is a special honor to talk to our next guest, the most successful manager in Phillies history, an overall great guy, a tremendous hitting guru, Charlie Manuel joins us on the podcast. Hello, Charlie. Mike, how's it going, man? I'm doing good, and uh, I'm glad that you're in town, as the Phillies now with three games at home. You're in town, so it's special when you're around the ball club. Uh, so give me right now your, your overall view of this series being tied 1-1, but you know that plays better than anybody. Uh, it's going to be a frightening scene for the Houston Astros tonight at
2: Citizens Bank Park. How do you see it? I see it. Uh, I, uh, actually, we're, we're in now with, with kind of like a series go to three out of best, three out of five. And I think if we're at home for three games, and I think we're going to have a big homestand, and uh, I think we're gonna, we've got a chance to win the World Series. I've said that all along, I, uh, and I believe that. I believe that uh, our fans tonight's going to definitely play a role in uh, the excitement as far as and they gonna, uh, 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 the Astros is going to have some, some problems with, us, with, with our fans because they send out a lot of energy in our yard. And uh, it's going to be a good game. I look at both lineups. Both lineups are pretty even as far as the hitting goes. Uh, I I think actually we got a little bit stronger uh, uh, bottom of the order than they do. And I think uh, I think Syndergaard's going to pitch for us tonight. And I think that he's been getting better each time out. I think that he's going to give us anywhere from three to five innings, and and that's about what they probably expect.
0: All right, let, let's let's talk about that energy because I mean, listen, you you've been through it. And uh, I, I, you know, I in in my lifetime that that series that that clincher against uh, uh, Tampa Bay was just uh, an unbelievable energy. But this energy is a has, has almost gone to another level. So like a team like Houston is a savvy team. I mean, they're experienced. They've been in the World Series four or six. How can th- this energy affect them from your standpoint? From you being in the dugout, hearing that energy, how does it affect the other team?
2: I think Joe Mann summed it up. When I, after the series over, I was talking to him, and he said that uh, everything was loud. He had to get real close to his coach to talk to him. And he said it's hard to, it's hard to uh, hear people in a dugout, but at the same time, it's like a, just a big roar, Mike. It's hard to explain, really, and it just keeps getting louder and louder. And uh, the series was San Diego, the last hands, and I'll tell you something, we were definitely louder than the Houston crowd. And it, and it's going to play a part in the, the, the thinking. And also I think it, uh, some of our fans are going to be getting on, them. I, you know, like I think they're going to rile them up a little bit.
0: Let, let me, let's talk about the pitching uh, matchups right now, because, uh, if we're being honest with you, the Astros, probably have a better three-four setup starting pitching-wise than the Phillies do. And you're going to have to cross your fingers that that Syndergaard can give you these kind of innings, and then you know you're going to have to use your bullpen, and you may have fry that for Game Four. So, um, tonight, if you're managing this game, how are you managing it?
2: Well, I'm trying to. I'm uh, hopefully uh, Syndergaard. Uh, you know, like when the game starts hopefully he'll give us a strong uh, 3 to 5 innings because basically you know like that's what he's been pitching and uh he, he's coming off of a uh, he was he was out all last year and and his starts really mean a whole lot because he gets stretched out each time i think and i think tonight he has to go 3 to 5 innings for us and then w- once we get into our bullpen and you're right, we, we have used our bullpen. But at the same time, too, this time of the season, I don't think the other night Thompson uh, 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 let his bullpen get out of hand because of the pitches that Alvarado threw and also Sir Anthony and those guys, I think that they did not, uh, th- that they arrested tonight. And also, I think they can come in the game. I think he can use the same pitchers that he has been using, if you want to know the truth. Yeah, I think they're they're
0: you're right. They are rested, so tonight they can probably get away with it. But I'm just worried about like how it carries over then for for Suarez because then he has to give you a, a deep
2: start as well the next night, right? Somewhere down the line, we've got to get some uh, uh, actually a deep start from our starters. And, and actually, I would say when we uh, you know, like once we get back into Nola and Will. Uh, uh,
0: all right charlie let's let's talk some uh some hitting right now because i remember you always used to say that hitting is contagious and uh the way the phillies that they have gotten tremendous at bats at least in the, in game one you saw it carry over. but through this whole postseason they've gotten really good at bats and I, I i keep thinking of you because like that was your whole thing get good at bats battle you're eventually gonna get a pitch you can hit um uh, talk to me about the offense of this team and how it goes from from one to nine.
2: I right, from one to nine, I look I look at our offense and uh, I think our offense actually. If you when I look look at both teams' offense, I think our offense is a little bit better. You know, like from the from the uh, uh, five hole down or six hole down, I, I think that uh, that we're a little bit stronger at the back end of our lineup than uh, Houston is really. And I think that power is about even, uh, you know, like we might be a little bit stronger in power. If you, if you look at it, they play in a, uh, they play in a small park. you know, something similar to ours. So, you know, like I, you can grade the power out in, in, in numbers, but at the same time too, I think, I think the big problem, uh, the big thing for us is that we're at home for three games. And I think that we're a team that really, uh, relies on energy and, you know, lack. And, and uh, I think we're going to be able to handle uh, Houston's uh, 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 offense better. Of, of course, you, when you, you brought up a great uh, the starting pitching tonight, you know, like they have – Houston has four deep starters. And that is a concern. That means that we got to hit uh, – get some hits or score some runs. But at the same time, too, I hear all the time good pitching beats good hitting, and I'm not, I am will not argue that. But also, I also say that sooner or later, if, if you're going to have a winning a team and win a championship, sooner or later, the hitting is going to have to beat good pitching. And I think in our lineup, we do have some uh, players like Harper, Swarber. Those guys have been around a while. They're veterans. And I think that we can uh, put up some runs on, uh, uh, on a Houston starting pitcher.
0: I think one of the other concerns for me is Altuve suddenly has found it, and, and he's, he's kind of a, uh, an engine yeah. starter. So uh, I'm a little nervous about yeah. him igniting things at the top yeah. of the lineup for them.
2: Mike, I said that the other day. Uh, I followed Altuve. Uh, I followed him his whole career, really. And he was over 30. He got a couple hits against the Yankees on the last day of the uh, playoffs. And he's starting definitely in the first two games he's played, he's definitely swinging about better than he was. And he is a force in their lineup when he's on. And uh, we're definitely going to have to shut him down some.
0: Uh, we're talking to Charlie Manuel. And, of course, I, I, I love to talk with Charlie about his philosophy of managing because when Rob Thompson took over, I started thinking about you right away. When they started to play differently, they seemed that they they were very comfortable. So from from your viewpoint, and then we'll go back to how you used to handle players. Uh, from from your viewpoint, wh- how did this transformation take place? Where they were scuffling along, and then all of a sudden they 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 found this calmness, and uh, they started hitting, and uh, <laughs> it transformed <laughs> magically. And they took that confidence into the playoffs. How did it
2: happen from your viewpoint? From my viewpoint, uh, you know, like we uh, when the season when the our season opened up this past, uh, past season. Uh, we were at, we were at, we were at a strong point in our uh, schedule and we were, you know, like in, you know, like we were playing the Mets and we was playing Atlanta and we just played all the, the, most of the top teams early. And I think we got off to, a, when we got off to a bad start and uh, once that we got off to a bad start, you, you know, like we looked very lethargic and we, we didn't look like we meshed together and things like that. And, uh, and once it, we made the change, uh, change in managers, it seemed like everything became different. And, but in the meantime, also, Mike, I want' to leave out if you notice the, the last two years we we used up until the start, when we started making some moves on our team, we used a lot of players, and we were trying to find you, you know like that, that mesh or, or, or the team aspect of our, uh, of our club. And once it, we got the, the all-Star break uh and 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 the young players i give robbie thompson a lot of the credit for the young players because he has not he's been using them correctly he's not turned one guy a loose where he can fail we got some very young players and on our team and the bottom of our lineup hit good definitely while harper was out harper was out and our team just kind of come together and they and they show a lot of affection for one another and and it looks like they really play good together and i i think after all-star break we really found our our identity as a team and we it looks like we love to play we got more energy and things like that and and put that energy in the playoffs and the fact that we play uh, uh, before a big crowd every night i think our players react to that and 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 uh, right now i think that they hot and uh, you know like in and 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 they're going to go all the way through the end of the season that way. I think the playoffs prove it by the record and where they're at. And 1-1 one and one in Houston, they, that wasn't all that bad because we're at home for three games and this gives us a good chance to get ahead. Yeah,
0: and uh, I, I think you're right on that point. They stabilized it with the young guys, too, because Marsh gave them a de- defensive stability and so did Stott, really. You know, it's almost like you go back to 93 when they, when they brought up Kevin Stocker and he gave them some kind of young stability in, in very important positions.
2: Totally agree. I totally agree with you. I, I totally agree with you. I think once we moved some of the guys off of our team, it, we, it wasn't like they were bad players, but, you know, like we chose to go with the energy and, 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 and the younger players. And all of a sudden, you know, like the, they really blend together good and, and, and they complement one another. And, our, and 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 I've always said hitting is contagious. And, and and in our lineup, when we really beating on people this year, we got different guys can be a hero every night. And and, and the bottom of our lineup, with some of our young players, definitely uh, have done that.
0: I love to talk uh, philosophy of managing with you, and I, I used to do it a lot. And uh, the beauty of you, and I, and this is what I see in Rob Thompson and the transition. The beauty of you was that you weren't afraid to put a boot in somebody's ass from time to time, and you did it with Jimmy, but you gave a, a certain calm to that locker room where every one of those guys believed in themselves and took it out on the field. They they were comfortable in that clubhouse. They were comfortable with them, their own selves because I think you made them comfortable. Uh, am I on in the, in the right path when it comes to that?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think it uh... – I, I think you're right on. I, I managed 10 years in the minor leagues, and I, I loved every one of my players. You could be, uh, you could be uh, you know, like the 25th guy on the team, and I, I spent just as much time with you as I did uh, the star player. I think it, that, that, that's how it's supposed to be done. You know, like we wanna play, I want to try to make each player the best player he possibly can be at the major league level and, and also use his talent, all of his talent. Like for instance, uh, uh, basically one of the biggest things I think about our team from an offensive standpoint was uh, when I did get the job. We sat and talked, and when I brought Davey Lopes over as one of our uh, base running uh, coaches, he was one of the best in the business. And it, and when Utley and uh, Rollins and uh, Victorino and Worth. You know, like we had a a, a, a team that could steal ninety percent of the time and be safe, and and so we can manufacture runs in about every category.
0: You know, baseball is so hard that the worst thing you could do as a manager is show your frustration with somebody's failure because you're going to fail in baseball. Right. And, I, and you used to do the opposite. <laughs> when somebody failed, it was like they were more encouraged by you. And, and I, I just think of two particular players that you did that with. One was Victorino. You made him believe he was a big-time major league player. And the other was Jason Worth. Jason Worth was a platoon player that you really believed in It could be a, a, a bona fide major league star caliber player.
2: Right. Mike, I think what you're saying, too, is kind of kind of like Burrow when I let him hit. And uh, he played a game one day in Houston and he was over 19 against uh, Clemens and he had 17 punch outs. And I left him in the five 0 and played him that day. I walked out on the bench and Doobie said to me, he said, Chuck, you sick or what's wrong? You? What's wrong with you today? And I said, what are you talking about? He says, uh, you got Burrow in there. Do you see Burrow's numbers? And I looked at him. I said, yeah, I saw his numbers. He's been swinging the back good. And I said, uh, this guy can hit Clemens. I said, this might be his day. I put him in the lineup. And he had first time up. He had, a, he had like a 10 or 12 pitch at bat. He had a home run. And we was up three to nothing. Yeah, the see, second that, that time was... he hit, we had to Go said, ahead. Now listen, yeah, I'm, I'm going to uh, yeah. we'll get to the World Series in a second too. So then second time up, when he, after he hit the home run, I told Doobie's one for 20 with three RBIs and a homer. The next time up, he hit a bases loaded double and knocked in three more runs and knocked Clemens out of the game. And I told Doobie, I said, uh, two for 20, uh, uh, two for 21, uh, six RBIs, a homer and a double. I said, that'll play. And then in the World Series, usually when I take would take him out for defense and tie games like in a, a seventh or something like that, and I looked there and I said, he has a chance to get another at bat. And I left him in the game. He was over 17 hit a double off the top of the fence and they got him. And to me, like uh, I, I, I kind of, you know, you got to stick with kind of who got you there. And in your lineup, you always say, well, one, uh, keep a train moving, picking that guy up that's struggling and things like that. And uh, I think that, that if you show the guy that he's your player, that, that, that he'll play better for you. And I've yeah, always see, thought that. I thought, yeah, that, that's I, the
0: beauty of, That's the beauty of you that a lot of people don't think about. Because in that situation with Burrow, he's already down on himself. You send him back out there, and he goes, "Wow, he really believes in me." So I, you know, I must be good, and and that changes a mindset of a player. And you were great at that because you know you didn't let failure trap those guys. You just sent him back out and said, "You're a good hitter. I don't care that you're out for 17, and that means such the the world to a player."
2: Right. Exactly. You know, like uh, another one, it was Jenkins. When I hit Jenkins, I had everybody telling me, oh, we just need to get a guy on base. You know, in the World Series in the, uh, the uh, like the final game of the World Series, when the game resumed and we started in the bottom of sixth inning, I led Jenkins off. He was in the pitcher's spot and, he, and I led Jenkins off. And I had people telling me, oh, we just need somebody to get on base and blah, blah, blah. And I studied when I thought about ball four, the guy that they were running out there. And when he starts a game, you know, he always threw a lot of fastballs low and also and try to get his rhythm and stuff in the game. And I thought to myself, well, if he does that, I want Jenkins hitting because he's a low fastball hitter. And then, you know, like. when he goes up there and he, uh, but they're telling me, oh, we need somebody to get on base. And Je- I, I, I thought, I told him in a dugout, I said, well, first of all, Jenkins can hit a double. He can hit a single, he can hit a home run. And I said, he's not going to steal a base. I said, but he's capable. And, and I said, he's a good hitter. And I used to, I've seen him play his whole career. So I told Jenkins about 10 for the game he was hit. <laughs> <Why? laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's, it's really it's because simple. Because he was not ready
0: to hit. Yeah. I mean, it's simple, but it's brilliant because James is thinking, wow, he's put me in this spot. Uh, he, he must believe in me. So therefore I believe in me. And it's such a little nuance exactly. with guys. Cause it's so right. mental baseball. When you get, you get a bat in your hand, you climb in there. Uh, it's just brilliant. The way you kind of, you yeah, handle all that thing.
2: Yeah. You know, Mike, I used to always want uh, to be competitive. And I think it's, sticking to sticking to my lineup and my guys i think that's very important and let's look at it this way but at the same time you could beat guys out on my team i've heard general managers stand up in a meeting and go and to say hey our team is set and all this and i used to come right behind them and say hey our team is not set i said if you get a chance to play and you play the best you can things like that you can beat somebody out and I think I mean those things like that always work for me. And I always what I believed in, I stood for it. And uh, and actually, they'll pay to me like that's what pay. I was a uh, you know like that's what uh, play, pays off as a team really.
0: Charlie, let me take you back to game one because uh, I want to see. I know you're managing right along with everybody else that's managing the game. And and here's Verland with a five nothing lead. And, and, and then it, it, I mean, he sails through three innings, and then it looks like he just lost the top of the strike zone. And you can kind of see it on his face that there was something wrong. And uh, I'm curious to know whether you would have pulled the trigger on a guy or, like Dusty said after the game, that uh, he's Justin Verlander, I owed him that. But, but to me, in a World Series, you don't have time to owe anybody, anybody anything. So I was curious to know how you would have handled that situation with Verlander.
2: You know, that's real. It's, I understand what Dusty said. You know what? For me to sit here and tell you how I would handle it, I don't know because if, if it popped up and, you know, like in the way I'm looking at him, I, I would not let my heart stand in the way of winning the game. And so, therefore, I might have, hey, I might have took him out there. I don't know. I know this, I would have respect for him because uh, who he is as a pitcher and, and his things that he's accomplished in his career. But at the same time, too, I want to win that game and uh it, i i think it uh, uh verlander like you said I, he was definitely having trouble definitely in the top of the strike zone and he was throwing the ball in the middle of the plate so therefore you know like when you look at that there comes a time especially in a playoff games where you you definitely got to make a move if you uh, uh, don't want to pay for it later really yeah you and can't wait that, uh, you, you don't have time to wait in a short series
0: especially <laughs> exactly. in the world series
2: right right i want to win that game and i want to have i want to have my best players on the field and i want to have my best pitcher in the game too so but so to charlie man charlie got, mike i think i think at verlander definitely uh he he lost control of of command and control of the strike zone. And also too, you know, like I think that he kind of got a little tired and stuff. I think that he, you you know, sometimes Charlie uh, Finley, uh, uh, Chuck Finley used to tell me sometime, he says, uh, sometimes mentally, I get mental to uh, fatigued," And he says, sometimes I, and I won't have thrown very many pitches. And he used to say, when I put my left, my right arm on my knee, he says, that's that's time for you to start watching me and things like that. And, he's, and basically, he's telling me, when I got my arm on my knee, you can come and get me. So, <laughs> I used to every time he put his arm on his knee, I'd come and get him, I mean, really. <laughs> and, but, but, you know, those are things that you've that kind of go on along. But you're going to – the moves that you make in a game, you've got to be ahead of the game, and you try to think ahead of the game. And really, and, uh, and, and things will work out for you. Thompson had – Really, hound his relievers good. You know, like in the game we won the other day. Uh, you know, like I thought early and things like that. He made he made he made some really uh, good moves, and at the same time too. You know, we were kind of struggling at the end, but but uh, uh, we were fortunate. To, you know, like to get out of it, and uh, and you know, like that's that's kind of how you play the game. But yeah, I mean, in listen, he playoff lived- baseball. It, you got it. Yeah, playoffs baseball, playoff baseball. You you got to really, really, really concentrate on winning every day, and it's not looking back or looking kind of look forward. You say, well, I'd like to have a pitcher ready, blah blah blah. If I can win today's game, I'm gonna win it. And, you yeah, know, I you think know, he, uh... Uh, That's why. Hey, Mike, I don't know if you remember or not, but. When I was a manager too, the uh, the guy in the, at the back end of the bullpen, it depended on how many pitches he threw in every outing. But he he could go anywhere from four to five times in, a, in days in a row. Nowadays, you know, like a guy goes two days. I mean, you know, like they want to, you know, like they want to make the, the, you know, like they don't want to use him because they want to rest him. And you know, like and I want my best best pitchers. That, that's why you that that you give them roles is to try to keep them in those roles until they pitch their way up in the, uh, back, and up to the back of the bullpen or they stay in that row. So, therefore, I want my best uh, eighth and ninth inning guys, uh, you know, like I want them out there. So, in spring training, I would stretch them out as far as throwing pitches. They would be uh, stretched out to throw at least uh, two innings or something like that. And, so, and, and, and you can keep your bullpen, you know, organized. What happened in 209 was we, our, our starters, we had a couple, one guy had a flu and Hamels was having problems and we kind of got uh, messed out of our rotation, you know, our, our starting pitching, and that, and that wasn't good for us.
0: Yeah, it's changed a little bit because you know they use guys now in high leverage situations in the fifth to get out of an inning, like he did with Alvarado. You're right. You had you had a stack of guys that you went to. You had you had Durbin and Air, and then you went to Romero and Matson to get the lids. You you were structured that way, and your guys delivered almost every night.
2: Yeah, yeah. I you know I'm tell you something. My uh, when when the two places I managed, Cleveland and Philadelphia. Uh, I always had good pitching coach. Doobie, Doobie and Dick Poe both – Dick Poe was a guy I had in Cleveland. He was good, and Doobie was always good, too. We always worked good together, and he, and he uh, kept our pitching organized as much as possible. And, uh, you know, like and that's very important, especially in the playoffs.
0: Charlie, let's go back to when you joined the Phillies. Uh, this is very interesting to me. They bring you in as a special assistant to the president, and you're in the organization. And a lot of people at the time say, well, Charlie being there is going to be a big lure to get Jim Tomey as a free agent. And that's sort of the way it turned out. If you could take me back and, and explain how that all transpired for you. Actually,
2: actually uh, when I was in uh, Cleveland and uh – and we played uh, Philadelphia in in interleague play. Uh, I, I used to, but I, I, those three days we played them. I think every day I had a conversation with Vukovic and Bo, and we'd sit and talk. And uh, they was asking me uh, about Tommy and uh, and the chance of him leaving Cleveland, and also because of Rowan playing third base for them, and they figured he was leaving. Uh, and, uh, and you know, like, and, uh, it seemed to me like that, that, that they wanted, you know, a top-notch hitter to, if, if they had to replace Roland at third base. So they kind of started getting – asking about Tommy. And then later on, when after Tommy had stopped doing his uh, negotiation, you know, like when once Cleveland made him an offer and he had to think about it, you know, like, uh, of course, the Phillies got in uh, – you know, they kind of got in on Tommy and and, and they decided they wanted to si- sign Tommy. Well, then at that time – Mike, I was getting ready, I was getting ready to go back to Japan, you know, like, but it's but then when they offered me a job in the organization and it wasn't, you know, like, and it actually, it was for me to kind of talk to Tommy and, you know, like he kind of, you know, uh, cause all those years and knew he was, you know, like, uh, and, and I was going to work in their minor leagues as kind of an instructor and things like that, you know, like that's, that's kind of what brought me over here but at the same time too you know like i just uh, uh w- when i got the job i was you know th- th- that's the only job i ever had uh, uh, th- th- that was the only job i ever got a you know like a a, a, a review of interview on and uh, as a manager and so you know like uh you know, like it was, it was, I had, a, I had two interviews, and I got the job. And you know, like, and, and to me, like, it, giving me the job was definitely not, you know, like it wasn't definitely set in stone. I think, that I, uh, I think I got that job, you know, like through my interview and also uh, my, uh, 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 my, my time I spent in the game and everything. You know, like where I'd been and what I, what I'd accomplished.
0: Yeah, it was the first time you did wear, you weren't wearing a baseball uniform to the office for a while, right?
2: <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah, right. yeah, yeah we had to wear a sport coat for the first time in your life to come in, come into the office. All right, yeah, so, so, right. so talk to me. Talk to hey, me about Tommy. Hey,
2: yeah, hey go you, ahead. you know who bought me my first? Hey, you know who bought me my first sport coat? Billy Mark. No. The day I made it, the day I made the Twins team, I got on a plane and I didn't have a sport coat. And he come back and he got mad because everybody's supposed to wear a coat and tie, and and actually I did not have a sport coat. And first time he we went to Cleveland, he sent me to a place called Harry Winraff's, and he bought me two suits of clothes and a sport coat. Who was this again? <laughs> who? Who did that? Billy Martin.
0: Oh, Billy, Billy Martin. Martin. Oh, that's awesome! Uh, all right, so that, tell me what was so special about Tommy? Because obviously you had a bond; it was like father son almost. What was so special? What what resonated uh, to you about him?
2: Because uh, he was with me when he first signed. If people would have seen Jimmy when he first signed, you know, like, like he was, uh, you know, he was real kind of backward like guy, and he was, you know, he didn't say much, and. uh and when I saw him hit, actually, back in the when I first saw him, he used to hit everything to left field. And he, you know, like, in, uh he led double A baseball one year in, in, in uh, batting average and uh, hitting in a league. And and he hit mostly 85% of the time, he hit the ball to left field. He didn't never get into his hand. And, uh, I was around him all those years. You know, like he he played for me. You know, uh, in minor leagues, most of, most of his career was spent with me in the minor leagues, and uh, I was around him in instructional and everything. Spent a lot of time with him, and he worked hard. He really really hit a lot, and even even he don't know how much he hit, and uh, and he uh, he was a good student, and also he really impressed me about him was the way the ball come off his bat. And, you know, like I, what impresses me about Harper is the ball sound when he leaves his bat, you know, like, and uh, I think Harper can be even a better hitter than what he is right now. And he's pretty good. But at the same time, too, the what, way the ball comes off his bat, I think and he's got bigger years left for us. And uh, and Tommy, Tommy was around me all the time, you know, like and he was he was like my son, really. I mean, he, uh, he was always wanting to hit. He was even when I had an hour of bail and all these guys over in Cleveland, I used to get a little jealous because I didn't uh, show him enough attention or something, <laughs> but, but he was, you know, he's the guy that he calls me day just like he, he is my son.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, let's talk about hitting with you because I love talking about hitting with you. You're such a student of hitting, and 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 in the big leagues today, I mean, it's it's hellacious. It's like if you don't throw ninety five to ninety nine, there's not really that much of a place for you. The the stuff is harder. It's harder to hit. What is the secret to being a good hitter in today's major leagues?
2: Yeah, you know, like uh, you like when I when I stride, I'm not letting. Even when I'm inside the baseball, I'm not the, my, my front hand should be about five inches from out in front, and that keeps me inside the ball. Now, when I want to hit the ball in the middle of the field, you know, like in between that five or six inches from my front foot, the longer I, my bat stays in the hitting zone, and the farther I get, I can hit the ball like in the middle of the field, or if I need to pull the ball or turn it, you know, like I can even go farther. So I can hit the ball from about uh anywhere to stay inside a baseball. You can you can all like Jeter, guys like that at a hit, they stay inside the baseball mostly all the time. But at the same time, when you really want to hit the ball out front to turn it, that is the most bat speed you can have, and your bat stays in the hitting zone the longest and things like that. And that's and that's how you hit hit with power. And uh Nowadays they teach you. I was in the minor leagues for the last four or five years, and we didn't talk about uh, selection or or, or plate uh, plate uh, coverage and all, or, or nothing about your swing. We only talked about letting the ball travel on you. And today's batter, you know, like they push the ball instead of hit it. And they uh, some of them have some of them have a push swing and actually can hit the ball out because the ballparks are much smaller. The bats are much harder, and the ball's harder, and and the pitcher, if he's got higher velocity, he supplies a lot of a lot of that power too. Yeah, so, it's yeah.
0: it's it seems like it's all launch angle and and uh, and, and backspin now, right? Uh, to get it lifted right. and, and and to get it out of out of here,
2: right? Well, backspin, you know, like uh, backspin to me is like if you work and you like in, uh, you work on hitting backspin and you get backspin on the ball, and it definitely will cut through wind better. And things like that. And also, it, it shows that you're staying on the ball much better, too. Uh, a launch angle, people misunderstand what a launch angle is. It's a point where, where the ball hits the bat. And, you know, like, and then they'll see, actually stop and think about it, when you drop the hit of the bat to the ball, and then when you come up and follow through, they, they think that's an uppercut. And to me, anything below my hands is a lift. Anything below my hands, anything above my hands is an uppercut. Unless unless somebody like – if you've seen Swarber hit that foul ball that uh, they had a discussion on the other night. Yeah. How, how he got on top of the ball and just hit straight through it. I teach hitting straight through high balls, even even like about belt high or below the uh, – in between your knee and your thigh. I just hit straight through those balls. that stays in the air. A baseball got 108 stitches. And if I hit two stitches underneath the center of the ball, that is equivalent to anywhere, but like a 20 to a 22 degree angle on the ball, like a launch, you would call it launch angle. But to, for, to me, a launch angle is nothing that where you hit the ball and you, when you come up, the moment the ball hits the bat, that's the launch angle.
0: Gotcha. That's that's fascinating. All right, let me wrap this up. I want to play a little word association with you and some players that you've had in the past, and the first words that come up in your brain when I bring it up. So I'll start. I'll start with Jimmy Rollins. Uh,
2: character, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Ca- character who who gave you some gray hairs, but yeah, but right. <laughs> also you you kind of had to live with, right?
2: Yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah. All right. Jimmy, uh, yeah. Uh, Ch- uh, uh, tell me about Jimmy. Go ahead. Uh, Jimmy uh, Jimmy Rollins is uh, he was uh, he's to me he's a flamboyant player and uh, sometimes when we were losing at, you know like that he that's when he would kind of get down and you know like Jimmy Rollins never ever said anything uh, negative or smart or nothing that back to me and I used to get on him a lot <laughs> and, you know, and but at the same time too he was a he was a heck of a player. Uh, he was a very underrated player because actually, like, if you watched his arm and uh, we used him, we only used him one cutoff, man. He was a guy, uh, you know, like when he was here, when he was a player, and that's tremendous because he had a great arm and he had a lot of, uh, you know, like at shortstop, he had great range. He had good, he had great range on running and catching fly balls and down the lines and stuff. And he was All right, very, uh, let, me, let, me yeah, let me go to Utley. Let me go to Utley. Yeah, yeah, he was very talented. Very talented. I like chase. him. I mean, he's one of my sons too, really. Yeah. So chase it? Chase I, is, I, is one of your sons. Chase is definitely one of my sons. What was it? Uh, about,
0: what, what was it about him that was so special?
2: Chase Utley. Uh, he's a leader, and he doesn't have to say nothing. It's just kind of the way he plays and the way he looks at you, and 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 the, and all the players respected him. Uh, every every player on the team, and probably everybody in our organization, probably you too.
0: yeah well yeah I did he was he was kind of a strange guy but I I couldn't deny how you know uh, what a player he was all right let's go to Ryan Howard
2: Ryan Howard I nicknamed him the big piece because I uh I told Pat Burrow when 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 I first became manager here I told him I said Pat you're my left fielder but I'm dropping you in the lineup to the five hole and he says why I said you hit 25 to 30 I got a guy that's gonna hit 50. So you know he's he's the carrier. That's why I call him the big piece. Uh all right, Roy Halliday. Roy Halladay, he's a man in every way I can think about. You know like a conditioning, a thought process, a stand-up guy, you know, didn't he, he he didn't have a lot to say but he he kind of led by example. But uh, he was a tough guy.
0: I want to go to a couple of Cleveland guys because you had a couple of really eccentric guys in Cleveland. So let let me start with Albert
2: Bell. Albert Albert Bell's the most intense. I mean, the, the most intense player I ever been around, and he always draw a lot of attention. He was not as bad as uh, people think because. Uh, his problem was the media people didn't like him because he used to tell them to get out of the clubhouse and <laughs> or, or he'd be hitting outside and tell them not to get in his way, things like that. And, uh, he's, uh, Albert Bell was the guy who had to be mad to be a good player. And he was a great player.
0: Hey, he was mad a lot. Uh, it, <laughs> like throwing a baseball at a fan, hitting him in the chest yeah. is an example
2: of being mad. Uh, now, now i tell you something. Now he's the one that would make your head, head gray because, it, uh, to me, the way to get to Albert Bell, Mike, was uh, to threaten not to play him or not to play him because, he, you know, like he was so in, tied up in stats and everything like that, and uh, he would get really upset when you set him on a bench. So that, <laughs> so, you know, so like, so that made play, him play harder. I used to tell him if he didn't run, I was going to set him on a bench, and he had run. But he, <laughs> he'd be, And I told him, you know, like he told me, and I remember one day getting an argument, with him, he told me, I don't want to run. And I said, would well, well, just think how much you hate me and run, okay? And then he, and, I, and I used to tell him that. But no, he, uh, but he was he was a uh, actually a Hall of Fame player, I think, really. He, I'm a very ta-
0: talented player, but you're right. He had to yeah. be mad to play. Uh, all right, so let's go to Manny Ramirez.
2: Yeah, Manny Ramirez. Okay, listen to this one. I say in a hitting, tension-free, or playing in baseball, tension-free. Manny Ramirez is tension-free in life. Everything he does is just kind of casual, lackadaisical, and you like, and he just kind of drags his bat up to home plate, and somebody say, look at Manny. Look at him drag his bat to home plate. Well, when he steps in the batter's box, everything changes. He, he, <laughs> he, he was, saying? He,
0: you're right. He wasn't an overthinker. He was just, you know, I'm going to hit. Right. I know I'm a hitter. <laughs> there was no mental strain on him.
2: Exactly. All right, last
0: guy this guy was fascinated to me Carlos Baerga.
2: yeah you know what uh kind of a sad story because when uh, when I had him you know like he he used to put up Hall of Fame numbers and you know like and, and, and later on you know like uh you know he you know like he you know, like he kind of got in trouble with mids and same like things like that and it, he kind of burned himself out and he got to he got to the place where it definitely affected his play and uh and he he had to he you know like he kind of he kind of went he kinda of went south real quick and then when he was he was he was headed for the Hall of Fame and definitely kind of uh, you know like uh, from from what happened to him, you know, like he lost that status. He knocked yeah. around for years and he never was that same hitter that he was before. He was a yeah, he was he, a boy, he, was,
0: he was a really good hitter early in his career. Uh, listen, uh, Charlie. This has been a really special uh, moment for for me. I really appreciate. It. Good to touch base with you again, and uh, I love baseball conversations with you. And so we'll just see how this World Series plays out. But it's a really exciting <laughs> yeah. time here, and we're, I'm glad you're in town for this.
2: Yeah. yeah, Mike. I I appreciate that. You know what? I uh, I look at our Phillies, and I look I look at everything about uh, the team and uh, fans and everything like that. And we're definitely due for another World Series. It's been a long time since we won. So you know, like. Uh, I I uh, I I want uh management to to get a world series. I want I want everybody in Philadelphia to get another one cuz I think we need it.
0: Yeah, that's good. Charlie, thanks a lot and we'll talk to you up the road. Thank you,
2: buddy. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me.
1: It's the Mike Ness podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.
2: All right, let's talk about the forgotten
0: team in this city. And of course, thanks to Charlie Manuel for joining us I, a delightful time talking to Charlie. I always love talking to Charlie about hitting and baseball and things like that. But the Philadelphia Eagles, ladies and gentlemen, are 7-0. Now, I want to start out by asking producer Darren a trivia question. Um, there have only been two quarterbacks in Eagles history that been able to start the season 9-0. Now, I, I bring this to you because they're likely to win their next two games, and we'll talk about that a little later. Can you tell me who those quarterbacks are
3: that have already done it, or are you including Jalen in that nine? And that with those,
0: no, no, he, no, I'm not talking about Jalen last year. Home, I'm talking about in a season. All right, in they start state. the season nine, nine and, zero. and oh, two quarterbacks.
3: I'm going to go Norm Van Brocklin, the <laughs> Dutchman. Am I right? The Dutchman is correct at 1960. Go. My dog is and? named after him, by the way. People think he's named. After I know Ray, that's why, why I brought it up because your dog is Dutch, Dutch, d-
0: Dutchman. Uh, all right, and uh, and and who's the other guy? Steve Van Buren. He was a running back. Come on, man.
3: <laughs> I mean, oh, not Van Buren. Not, not Van Buren. Uh, oh, um, oh, oh. yeah. <laughs> Gotta be a long time ago. No, 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 no. It was modern times. How
0: quickly we forget. How how we don't give this man any credit whatsoever. Come on, man. Don't tell me Jaworski. No it's not Jaworski. Uh, no. See, this is great. The best quarterback in history, of the Wait, Eagles.
3: Don't tell me McNabb. I thought McNabb was seven and zero, and then they lost.
0: McNabb
3: in two thousand and
0: three. Started the season, they
3: were seven and zero and lost to Pittsburgh.
0: Nine and zero, the graphic was on the television.
3: Ah, uh, you sure? The
0: graphic was on. I
3: Thought they lost that seventh game to Pittsburgh.
0: The, gra- the graphic was on the television last night. That's right. that's where I got it from. But that's beside the point. Let's talk about the Eagles. Forget about that that little record. Um, the uh, the Philadelphia Eagles uh, defeated. Um, The Pittsburgh Steelers and and rather here's the thing about this team, which is so different than any team that I've ever seen. They follow the exact same script every game. They just, they bury a team early. Anybody who comes up against them is inferior. They get it to a lead. They, they display their dominance and then they soften up so as not to give up a big play. And then when, they're pressed a little bit. They have the answer. It is the same script almost every game with this team, which makes this run so impressive. But let's, uh, uh, listen, they they got, they got chunk yards yesterday for touchdowns. So uh, I know A.J. Brown is, is the star. A.J. Brown, 39-yard touchdown, bang. 27-yard touchdown, bang. 29-yard touchdown, bang. The first touchdown... He gets a taunting penalty because he says. You know, first of all, he was recovered by a cornerback named uh, Akella Witherspoon. What you doing, Craig? You know that reference? I, I just did a Friday's reference, Friday movie reference, because John Witherspoon was uh, was Craig's was uh, Ice Cube's father in Friday. You didn't even get that. That went way over your head, right? It went over my head. That's all right. It's a it's relevant the point. My point is that Keller Witherspoon got buried all day by, by A.J. Brown. The first touchdown, now, Minkie Fitzpatrick, who's one of the best safeties in the league, looks like he's got it lined up and just wasn't aggressive enough because that big body snatches the ball right out of his hands. And, and afterwards, he says, Brown turns to him and says, "Counting, it counts, and he goes, one,
3: two, it's not enough. <laughs> That's that's classic. I love it. And and but he gets it, he that was the hardest I've ever laughed at an NFL game. That was funny.
0: He, <laughs> one, two. That's not enough. And and uh, he gets the twenty penalty for it. So, but but you know, on these big chunks. And the other one is Zach Pascal goes for thirty four yards. So he's 29 thirty nine, twenty seven, twenty nine, thirty four. They only took one snap in the red zone. The first snap they take in the red zone is the eleven yard touchdown. To uh, uh, to Sanders, which is their fifth touchdown of the day. So, the Eagles are always talking about, is always talking about, you win it, the the impact plays like that. The chunk plays like that. And they did it yesterday. But as good as A.J. Brown was, let's look at the quarterback who delivers the football. All right, the first one, Fitzpatrick should have been all over. Numbers two and three to A.J. Brown were dimes. They were right exactly where they had to be. And this dude... His his rating in this game was 140. And he's not and, and every everybody looks at it like it's an answer thought. It was an AJ Brown day. But but Jalen Hurts gets better every week. It's just phenomenal how this man has adapted to being a big time quarterback in this league. And he did it again. And and here's the thing about that I love about the Eagles. so okay, they were really it was seven seven for a time, and the Eagles get a 14-7. They got twenty one and seven. When it's 28-13, to 13, the Steelers are making a mini run. They get the field goal, make it 28-13. They get the Eagles to punt. And then the Steelers are driving a little bit. And you're looking at it. All right, here's the second half thing again. They're driving. They get to the Eagles 36. Here comes the strip sack. Hargrave makes a great play. The Eagles recover. And then, bam, two plays. Two plays gets them in the end zone. Right right down the middle to A.J. Brown for 43 yards. They go 54 yards in two plays, 43 to A.J. Miles gets the 11-yard run, and uh, it was their first snap in the red zone. They converted for a touchdown, and they're out of harm's way again. 35 to 13. See you, Pittsburgh. Have a good evening. Get on the bus. Let's get out of here. And here's the ultimate. They put in the second team. Meanwhile, the defense and I'm going to talk about that in a second because we did the post game show. I, I, I do it with Seth and Derek on Devin Caney live at the uh, Ocean Casino in um, in Atlantic City. Um, but of course, this is brought to us by BetRivers, so don't forget if you're going to download, get the BetRivers app. Uh, and 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 we're we we're, we're talking about uh, uh, the uh, we have our di- it's called the Diamond Debate, and so just to mess around. We we have uh, this debate, and I'm thinking what what could be a debatable topic. And I'll get to that in a second, but first, let me talk about the the Eagles' defense. You know, the, there's this this notion that this defense is not as aggressive as it should be. I hear from Seth Joyner every week. Now, I, I put it in its prior perspective because Seth's an aggressive guy. Seth played under aggressive defensive coordinator. Seth played on defenses that blitzed and mo- tried to maul quarterback. Gannett is not that. But for all the criticism that they give Gannon, the four-man front is not aggressive enough. They had six more sacks yesterday. They now have 23 sacks on the year, which I believe leads the NFL. Uh, and, and, and they get a strip sack. and they, they, The defense is doing like Yeoman's work, even though they're not ultra-aggressive. And I'm looking at the defensive coordinator. I go, I'm okay with exactly what you're doing. Because what you figured out, and it may not apply to good teams and you'll have to maybe alter the plan. But for right now, what you do is your team is so good. You get control of the game early and you're going the only way that team get back is if we're stupid enough to give up a big play and they don't. And therefore they use the four man front and they're content to use the four man front. And meanwhile, the four man front against Pittsburgh gets six sacks. So I don't know what the complaints are right now. Now, if their non-aggression hurts them against a good team, and my God, I don't know when that good team is coming our way because we're going to look at the schedule in a minute. Uh, if, they, if they get burned by not being aggressive, then we can talk. Right now, <laughs> they're checking all the boxes. All right, here's the debate you want to have. Um, at the end of that game, all right, they, I'm looking at the Pittsburgh Steelers, a, a once-proud franchise. We're now at rock bottom. And it's 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 kind of pathetic, really, when you think about it, because this is the the franchise of the of the the uh, you know the, the 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 rings and the uh, Joe Green and 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 the Coke uh, the Coke commercial and, and uh, the the uh, the uh, terrible towel and you know all this stuff, all this Steeler lore of them being they one of the great franchises and here they are, the Eagles. Put them into submission to the point where they go wholesale substitution, back up second teams with eight thirty four left in the game. The ultimate humiliation to the other team. Now they happen to be coached by guys pretty well respected in the NFL, Mike Tomlin, and you almost feel sorry for the guy that he's got to he's got to live with this kind of stuff. He's got uh, a a first year quarterback who really. You know, he's okay, but he doesn't have a play yet in, in in this league. And, and they're just going to lose and lose and lose, even though their defense tries hard. Um, and I'm going, okay, look at that. Man, this franchise now has to be wholesale subbed on. And, and I'm thinking that's, that's a kick in the balls to, to Mike Tomlin. Well, on top of that, the camera shows Jason Kelsey goofing around on the Eagle sidelines wearing a Batman mask. Now, I... I to to me it's a classic debate it's not it's not a serious issue it's just a debate that we were having fun with and i started getting roasted on special on uh, social media because i said that was inappropriate it was inappropriate because mike tomlin's the other guy if it was a punk like jim harbaugh or somebody like that then i wouldn't have a problem yucking it up and rubbing it in a respected guy like mike tomlin Shouldn't be able to look at an Eagle sideline and say, man, they got their second team against this. I'm already humiliated. And Kelsey's wearing a Batman mask, yucking it up. And it rubbed me the wrong way. I, didn't, I thought it was inappropriate. I don't think a veteran guy like that should have gone there. It's not, again, it's not a big deal. But I said I started getting roasted by fanboys on social media. Now, just think about if it was the reverse. Would you have looked at that and seen a Batman mask on a guy on the other side and not be offended by it? If you were a fan of a team that's downtrodden right now, you're damn right you would have been offended. So I look at it, and Jeff Stoutland, who's an old-school offensive line coach, I see him walk by Kelsey, say something, Kelsey takes off the Batman thing, which I think was appropriate. Now, Darren, I don't know how you feel about it, but that's why I brought it up. How did, Did you see it, and what was your thought?
3: I saw it. And I'm going to play the other side so we can have a debate here. But you know what? Okay. You don't want to get clowned. Don't get clowned on the field. If you remember this team in 2017, now, there's, you know, there's three guys left. But they were the same way. They were doing the dances on the sidelines, goofing off. They, they're beating teams by 40 and 50 points. They put 58 on the board, I think, against Chicago. Another 55 the following against Denver. You know, so they did the same thing. So the other side of that debate is you don't want to look like – you don't want to get clowned? How about you play up to their standards a little bit and not get blown out by 22?
0: Yeah, but they can't play up to the standards. They're clearly uh, in a rebuilding mode, so that's an impossible task you're asking them. They're not a good team. And and Tomlin, I think, deserves a little more respect than that. That's all I'm saying. Listen, I don't want to get down on an Eagle player. I know Eagle fans go, what are you talking about, Mike? You're overreacting. I'm just looking at it. Take yourself outside the body of an Eagle fan and look at the circumstances as either appropriate or inappropriate. This is the NFL. These guys are professionals, and I get it. I don't have a problem with taunting on the field. Those players are going to war against each other. I don't think a coach should be subject, especially a respected coach like Mike Conlon, should be subject to that. I just don't. I I thought it was inappropriate that he would.
3: people go, it's Halloween.
0: Really? Is it Halloween? You're giving out candy on the sidelines on the Sunday afternoon?
3: Halloween's tonight. It was Halloween. I'm not losing any sleep over the Steeler franchise in a down year. I mean, I, I kind of enjoying it a little bit, to be honest with you. That's a, that's what I'm saying. I, I just saw. I thought it was a bad move. I'm not. I hate. I hate their fans. <laughs> I get. It. I hate their fans. I hate that franchise. I'm enjoying them. That's
0: because you're 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 playing you're playing fanboy now, and you're saying that's that franchise has had enough success, so screw them. But
3: that's not really
0: the issue. The issue is not screw them. The issue is the act itself, <laughs> Pittsburgh. <laughs> uh all right and most people are all right with it and that's why i've been getting roasted on special on on social media i'm just saying okay all right so let's let's move past that now let's let's look at this schedule now because we talked about the 9-0 thing early on um it's amazing to me uh what now who they have to play because i I can almost make a case for 14-0. and 0. So let's just look at it. It,
3: here. it was 7-0 and 0 for McNabb, by the way. 7-0, and 0, they lost to Pittsburgh in Week 8 in 04. That was the game where hmm. he and T.O. had the tirade on the side.
0: All right, well, then they they must have had the graphic roll, or they were thinking about that he won two games a year before, and that's what they're relating to Hurts.
3: That might have been. They won their
0: last That's team. probably what they were doing. Uh, okay. Uh, all right, th- so let, let's look at, at, at what they have coming up now. Um. You got uh, the next game Thursday night. The Houston Texans uh, down there. Uh, do they have any? <laughs> do they have any chance to lose that game?
3: No, absolutely not.
0: Okay, <laughs> okay. that game, by the way, is on Prime Video. So you, you get your Prime, and uh, and you'll 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 get a chance to look at that game. It's eight fifteen Thursday. the The Eagles are in a situation where it's a really quick turnaround for them. I don't know when they're gonna get to Houston. Uh, but it also sets up a beautiful weekend for any Philly fans who uh, hopefully the, the World Series, well, hopefully it doesn't. But if it does, will you, this would be a fan lifetime experience. You go down, good tickets are available, by the way, for that game. So you can see the football game and you can probably hang around and buy a ticket to follow the Phillies. So uh, uh, ultimate Philly fan situation there, uh, uh, unless the Phillies went three here, which I would prefer. Uh, the Commanders. The Commanders pulled one out of their ear yesterday with Taylor Heineke. Uh, and that is a, an eight fifteen Monday night game. They don't lose that either, do they?
3: Zero chance they lose that. No.
0: <laughs> okay. Zero. That's a home okay. game, by the way. So now that's 9-0. And, oh, and now they go to no. Indianapolis. The Colts have given up. They're using Sam Ellinger as their quarterback at Indianapolis on a Sunday afternoon.
3: How do you feel about that? I'm pretty sure the Texans beat them 20 to nothing at some point this year, if I remember correctly. Less than zero chance they lose that game.
0: Okay. So now we're talking, we've reached double digits at 10 and 0. Now let's look at the other grouping of the next three games. Green Bay has fallen apart. They stink. Now, they're going to probably make a move, to make a trade to get somebody in here. They're awful right now, and that's a Sunday night game. And and it's at home.
3: See, that could be that could be a loss because they're injured now. They could be healthy. And now you're getting to the point in the season where some teams are going to need the game. The Eagles aren't going to need the game. That could be. I mean, look, you're, you're facing oh, Aaron it's, Rodgers. Listen,
0: it's Green Bay. It's still Aaron Rodgers. Yeah. It's a possibility, but the Eagles are going to be a healthy favorite in that game. And on
3: paper, that's probably their toughest game remaining.
0: Maybe Dow.
3: Okay. But it's home. And now Tennessee the following week.
0: That's now, uh, listen, Jordan Davis is hurt, and that's a shame because he's going to miss like four to six weeks with a high ankle sprain. So, Derek Henry, who had like 700 yards on Sunday, is going to get the ball 35 times in that game. But they're still not going to lose that game, are they?
3: That is that game at Tennessee?
0: No. Oh, Home. all right. So one that, o'clock I on a Sunday. Like
3: the Titans team. First of all, they're well coached. They play smash mouth ball, defense, running game. That's the type of team that could beat the Eagles. Okay. All right. So I'm going to say I'm going to say that's their first loss.
0: Okay. So they'll beat Green okay. Bay. They
3: beat Green Bay. Come back to and that's
0: eleven and oh. They lose to Tennessee. Yeah. That's, that's, that's their the first loss. loss, 11 and 1. Because
3: of the way they play ball. I mean, if that's the play, All right,
0: and then play. here comes everybody. Oh, you gotta watch this team. You gotta watch that team. They lose to Seattle, the Giants. So they're at the Giants in that game. Are you telling me that the Eagles are gonna lose two in a row?
3: No, they 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 outclass the Giants this year.
0: All right, that's 12 and one now, and I'll stop there because I don't even want to go any further. At worst, 12 and one. 13 games.
3: You're at, at that point, your MVP, your runaway MVP is Hurts in the league. Regardless okay. of schedule, the team's 12 and 1. He, I thought Sunday was his best game as a professional. His touchdown pass, those three, all three passes to Brown were absolute dimes. I, mm-hmm. I didn't think, I'll be honest with you, I didn't know if he had that kind of game in him until Sunday. Uh huh. And that okay. really took me to the next level with it for the first time.
0: All right. So that's about all we'll talk about in this podcast, except uh, I like to like take a, a little parting shot. Um, th- there's a new TV show that, well, it's not new. It's the second season. I don't know if you watched the first season, uh, but uh, it got all kinds of enemy awards. and It was really, uh, it was really funny and, and poignant and very entertaining. It was The White Lotus. Did you watch The White Lotus on HBO?
3: Um, I watched a little bit of it because I'm a big Alexandra Daddario fan. She was season oh she one. <laughs>
0: she's a, she's a beautiful, uh, one of the most underrated beautiful women going uh, right now. The,
3: she's num- numero. I mean, if I I, get I, a I hard totally hair,
0: agree with The Dark hair, blue I, eyes, right there. Yes. Uh, all right. So you didn't watch the whole series. No, it was no. pretty good. It was pretty solid. So they have come back with season two. It's not the same thing, except for one character comes back. That eccentric woman. Uh, forget her name, Jennifer the girl, Coolidge. The
3: chick Stifler's mom.
0: Yes, yeah, Jennifer Coolidge. <laughs> Jennifer She's Coolidge. the only returning cast member. And now they're in Sicily at another White Lotus hotel. And I watched the first episode. Sunny was the first episode. Christopher Moltisante is in it.
3: Michael Imperial. As,
0: as one of the guests. Yes. That's all I will tell you. But... If you're Italian, it's got the beautiful Italian, a lot of Italian, younger Italian girls speaking Italian, and it's in Sicily, and it's a beautiful romantic thing going on. And the first episode, I gave it a thumbs up, so I'm in on that series. All right? So I just want to recommend for people that saw the first one or didn't see the first one got a lot of Emmys, I think you'd be entertained by by the, the juxtaposition of all these eccentric guests that kind of congregate in this hotel and spend some time there. All right. That'll do it for today's podcast. Uh, we appreciate everybody listening. Again, this is podcast number 17. And I want to thank the great people, Bet Rivers, for being behind this podcast. We're getting great reviews on the podcast. We're getting a lot of new listeners. So tell your friends and neighbors that you can find this podcast on any podcast network. People get flummoxed when I say podcast. How do I get it? All you got to do, the, most, the simplest form, is you go to Google, like you do every day, and you type in something. If you type in the Mike Missnelli podcast on Google, boom. It pops up, but if you're used to getting podcasts, you get it on Spotify, you get it on Apple iTunes, you get it on Amazon, you get it on Google, wherever you get your podcast. You get the Mike Missanelli Podcast. That's what it's called. We have a lot of fun, and we're trying to do one every day to follow this World Series. So thanks for listening to this one. Let's go Phillies. We'll be back at you tomorrow with a review of Game 1. Have a great rest of the afternoon. Mike Missanelli, Darren, I'm out. Thanks for listening.
1: Thanks for listening to the Mike Missanelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.